Now y'all stay standing for a second because actually Jesus hasn't gotten to the best part of this, this discord. He, he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Now you may be seated. Lord, I ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You know, there's a, there's a question that seems to follow me around wherever I go. I was reminded of it here recently. Uh, as many of you know, I, uh, the last couple semesters I've been teaching religion at the University of Georgia, uh, and the question has come up there. Uh, before that, I spent several years studying religious families from a sort of psychology perspective, and the question definitely came up there. Wherever I am, someone, at, at some point, someone pulls me aside and says, you know, a student or a, or a colleague, and says, hey, Bill, those religions, like, they're all getting at the same thing, right? They're, you know, they're sort of, let's, let's be honest, they, they're all talking about the same God, right? And I, you know, I mean, there's a way in which I get the impulse. Wouldn't it be nice we could sort of smooth things over, everything, we just sort of get rid of all of these pesky differences and, and life would be so much easier. But, you know, then it sounds really peaceful. And then you start to think about the implications, Wait a second, what are, we, what are we smoothing over here? I saw a bumper sticker the other day, and I, I saw it, and I thought, oh, that's it. That, that is my issue in a nutshell. The bumper sticker said, uh, you know, something, something. We're all children of the same universal spirit. And I thought, man, that's, that's the problem. You see, the moment you make such a move, the moment you recast Christianity as just one of a set of options, what you end up having to do is sort of come up with a God of the least common denominator. And you end up with a God who's so generic, so faceless, so lacking in character, um, so vague, that he's ultimately just unknowable. It's just, it's like vanilla ice cream. There's nothing there. In short, you end up with a God very much like the, the God of the deists, the God of the sort of the intellectual elite in 18th century Europe, a, a God who doesn't care about his creation. He sets the world in motion and just walks away. Now, that depiction of God is just fundamentally separate from the depiction of God in Scripture. And today is a day all about the character of God, all about the particularity of God, about how God relates to his people, not in an abstract way, but in an intensely personal way. Today is commonly known as, the good, as Good Shepherd Sunday, a day in which we reflect upon the image of Christ as our Good Shepherd. And yet, for, for us, there's a way in which this image, we have to kind of rescue it, because it can become a sort of a thing of childhood, right? We, we picture a kind of flannel graph, maybe a wooden carving of, of a, a sort of two-dimensional Jesus effortlessly carrying a sheep of, of really no more consequence to us than old MacDonald or Peter Rabbit. And yet, for the early church, this image was the image of Christ. 
This was central, and it was everywhere. They put it on everything. It captured for them the whole meaning of the life of faith. One historian put it this way, On no image does the early church seem to have dwelt with greater delight than this of Christ as the good shepherd bringing home his lost sheep. Christ appears in the same character of the good shepherd on coffins and paintings in the catacombs, on chalices in the Eucharistic service. And this representation always occupies the place of honor at the very center of the vault or the tomb. And so the question becomes, what was it about this image, this image of the particular character of God that was so important to the early church? How do we recapture that? So like I said, today is about the character of God, and that's, that's really what we see going on in our gospel reading. Uh, just as some context, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's come to the holy city, and, and you know, from a public relations standpoint, it's been a bit of a nightmare. All right. Uh, three, on three separate occasions in the last like two chapters, someone has tried to kill him or arrest him. Right? And, and you can sort of imagine as the apostles, you're thinking, we've got this guy, he's the Messiah. Oh no, what's going on? And right before this teaching, Jesus has had to flee the temple. The people are actively throwing stones at him, and he stops in the middle of the road. There's a vagrant who's, who is, is clearly um, aff yeah, afflicted. He's, he's um, clearly living a sinful life, right? This is what the apostles are thinking. And he's sitting on the side of the road. He's blind, and Jesus stops and heals him. And then Jesus leaves, right? They've got to get going because people are trying to stone him. Well, the Pharisees and the, the leaders of the, uh, the religious leaders find out and they begin to interrogate the guy. Uh, they excommunicate his parents from the synagogue and they keep interrogating him and asking him these questions like, where does Jesus come from? Where does he get his authority from? And the man says, wait, you don't know? I was blind. Where do you think he got his authority from? And what's funny is actually this question comes up again at the very end of our chapter. At the very end of the chapter, after Jesus has finished talking, it says, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Demons aren't in the habit of going out and doing good works. That's the idea. But you see, this question then frames the whole conversation. They for it forms a kind of bookends. Where does Jesus come from? What's the nature of his authority? But what's really clear is that the issue isn't at the surface level. It's not that Jesus hasn't done enough miracles. The issue is not evidence. The issue is understanding. The issue is not evidence. The issue is understanding. They don't understand the nature of God. They don't understand his character. And because they don't understand his character, all the miracles in the world aren't going to help them see who Jesus is. So Jesus has to teach them about the character of God. And so he grabs an image, an image that would have been very, very common in their daily life, but also in their prophetic tradition. He grabs the image of the good shepherd, which occurs over and over again in the Old Testament. And he begins to teach them about the character of God. What I'd like to do is, this is, this is a massive passage. It, there's so, you could spend the rest of your life diving into the meaning of this passage. I'd like to highlight three aspects of the character of God that are presented in this passage. First, in verses 3 through 5, Jesus says, The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, 
and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The first characteristic I want to highlight today is this knowledge that Jesus keeps talking about. This mutual knowledge that exists between the shepherd and the sheep. It's reciprocal. It goes back and forth. And it's worth asking for a second, what kind of knowledge is Jesus talking about here? You know, I think there can be a kind of unhelpful suspicion. Uh, there's a way that we kind of, we tend to, we read passages like this and we tend to take them, we tend to think of knowledge as a synonym for identify. The shepherd can identify his sheep. He knows which ones are his because he's, he's got a list somewhere or he's got some sort of special marking that shows him which sheep are, which sheep are his. Such an intuition produces a strange and often strained approach to God, wherein God's knowledge of us is like a shopkeeper's knowledge of his inventory. God doesn't care about you. You're just one of so much stock. But that, that's not what Jesus is describing here. How do we know? Because Jesus talks about the relationship being reciprocal. He uses the same concept to describe his knowledge of the sheep and the sheep's knowledge of him. What he's getting at is something different. It's something that's fundamentally relational. Kenneth Bailey, a, a professor of classical Middle Eastern studies, spent about 40 years teaching in the Middle East. And while he was there, he would interact with the people and he would ask them questions and, you know, as much as he was doing the teaching. And he had one class he talked about where he was teaching Lebanese shepherds about this passage, about the passage of the Good Shepherd. And so he asked them, what happens when a shepherd acquires a new sheep? What is this process of knowledge like? How does this occur? And the shepherd responded, well, the, the new sheep would need time to learn the voice of the shepherd. When, when the shepherd comes to the pen in the morning and calls out, all the old sheep become excited. They get agitated. They start pushing towards the gate. Usually there's a gatekeeper, or maybe a, a local boy who's paid by all the families to keep a big pen of all the sheep. And the boy opens the gate and the shepherd calls again and all of the sheep run out of the gate, except for the new sheep. All the other sheep are excited, and this new sheep actually becomes confused and kind of distressed. It can't go to the party. It doesn't know what's going on. The shepherd says it takes time. He says the sheep kind of has to go through a kind of therapy. It, it takes multiple reiterations of this experience before you can say that the sheep knows the shepherd. What Christ is saying here in this line is simple. My sheep know me. It's not a status, it's a relationship. Shepherds walk with their sheep. They clean their sheep. They're there when the sheep are born and when the sheep grow old. It's this intimacy that gives birth to the relationship between the two, a knowledge between the two. Jesus is saying, don't you understand when the Messiah comes, he's going to have this kind of relationship with his people. That the relationship pattern that you see between a shepherd and a sheep is somehow an image of the Messiah's relationship with his people. You know, just as a kind of pastoral aside, I, uh, sometimes I'll talk with people about suffering and they want to know why does God allow suffering? Why doesn't God just put an end to all of the evil in the world just, and it's gone? And you know, there, there's an intellectual question there that's worth, that's worth dealing with. It's worth thinking through, right? Um, we can have a conversation about that. It, that's important. But you know, so often our intellectual questions are masking a relational one. 
what we really care about, what we're really asking about in those moments is, what about me? Does God care about my suffering? Does God care about my life? Does God care about me? And we're scared that if the answer to this general sort of intellectual question is no, then the answer down here is going to be no. Now, we're going to get to the answer, the relational answer, in a minute, right? That's actually the third point, is about Christ's response to our suffering. But the first step is realizing that the answer doesn't come in the form of a syllogism. It doesn't come in a logic book. It doesn't come with a sort of empirical analysis. Uh, the first part of the answer is this. Christ is the good shepherd. And being the good shepherd means that he knows you and has walked with you all along the way. Wherever you've gone as a member of the flock of Christ, the good shepherd has been there beside you. He isn't ignorant of your life. He isn't ignorant of your pain. He's been there the whole time. And it's through that knowledge, in the midst of that knowledge, that he calls you his own. And there's more. And this gets to the second feature of the image, right? The second feature of God's character. As Christ, Christ walks with you, he's not passive about your life. If there's a pitfall that says God doesn't know, there's another pitfall that says God knows and he just doesn't care. Or maybe he cares a little bit, but he is waiting to see how you do with things, right? This is the sort of image of God as the distant father. God kind of stands back and waits to see if you figure out what he wanted you to do secretly, right? He knows everything. He's given you his law. Now he's waiting to see if you measure up. And, you know, there's a, there's a moderate version of this, right? I, you know, uh, objectively, if you know the gospel, you know that picture. There's something wrong with that picture. But we have our own kind of evangelical version of this. It says, yeah, Christ saved us and all, but he's also waiting to see if he can be proud of us. Sure, you're saved. He's waiting to see if you earn his respect, his, his admiration, his pride. I think we see this a lot when we're struggling with major life decisions. This is when this, this sort of particular temptation comes up. What is, God, what is God's calling on my life? And this little voice sneaks in and says, what if I miss it? We think of God sitting back like some sort of warped version of Hansel and Gretel, leaving breadcrumbs and waiting to see, are they going to figure it out? And I would, I would just say, if that specter comes up in the back of your mind, juxtapose it with this image. Christ says, I am the door of the sheep. Through me, the sheep come into safety. Through me, the sheep go out to pasture. At each step of the way, it's through me. I'm there. The image here is of a shepherd that's taken his sheep out into the wilderness, by the way. The first image is of a shepherd in a city. This image is of a shepherd who, you know, as the, as the, uh, the season goes on, shepherds have to go further and further away from the city to find pasture. And so as they get out, there's a, there's a certain distance at which it doesn't make sense to come back anymore. You can't, you're going to spend the whole day traveling. You can't make it back at night. Where are you going to put the sheep? Well, they built these sort of these stone corrals in the wilderness, right? Nobody owns them. They're just there for the shepherds. As you get out there and it gets late, you find one of these and you herd the sheep into it. And the corrals, it's kind of like a shirt collar, right? It, it goes around and there's sort of a gap, the sheep to go through. And the shepherd comes and lies down in the gap. So Jesus isn't comparing himself to like a wooden door here. He's saying something that's just quite literally true. I am the door. That's what the shepherd does is he lays down in the gap. And then after the night has passed, he gets up, he rounds up all the sheep, and he leads them out again. Notice the intentionality here. 
Notice the purposefulness. He brings them out into the wilderness. He brings them into a place of safety. He wakes them up in the morning and he leads them back out into a place of pasture. Here's what I want you to see. Everything in the Christian life is lived out in the midst of an intimate connection to the shepherd. Christ isn't waiting for you to figure things out. He's not standing back waiting to see if you get it right. He's actively journeying with you and leading you to where true life can be found. It doesn't, it doesn't always feel like that. I, don't, hear me say I'm, I'm, uh, don't hear me say that or that I'm suggesting that the Christian life is one where you just feel this reassuring presence all of the time. That, that's not what I mean. I'm not talking about feelings. I'm talking about this is where the reality of the Christian life is. The presence of Christ is there whether you feel it or not. Christ is walking alongside you. Christ has organized you, your life, to bring you into fuller life. And when you go and when you find yourself, as the psalm says, in the valley of the shadow of death, when you find yourself lost and afraid, Christ the shepherd is there with you. And he's going out to find you, as he says in another place. When a sheep is lost, I go and I find him and I bring him back. Now, speaking of life, speaking of Christ bringing you into life, there's one last characteristic of the good shepherd that we need to talk about. It's, it's the most significant. It's, it's the reason that we added on that latter part of the reading, right? Because otherwise we miss it. And this is the best part. One last characteristic of Christ, the good shepherd. You know, at this point, actually, before we dive into that, I want to highlight something. Christ is playing with the metaphor, right? So we all know the line I'm talking about, right? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Up to this point, everything Jesus has said is firmly within a kind of economical context. It makes sense, right? You know, there's the bit about like the false, the false shepherds and stuff like that. That's kind of offensive maybe to his audience, but everyone can agree that there's a coherence to what he's saying. These are things shepherds do. When he gets to this point, he begins to play with the metaphor. It won't serve him anymore. And so he removes it thoroughly from its kind of economic context. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, shepherding is a dangerous job. There's, um, for days at a time, you're alone in the wilderness. You're in an impossible distance from any sort of civilization or shelter. You're at the mercy of wolves and lions. It's not that the danger is absurd. It's the verb that's absurd. Jesus doesn't say, I'd put up a good fight for my sheep, or I'm willing to risk you know, the danger as long as there's hazard pay. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Not, I'll fight to the death even. I lay it down. Y'all, this is weird. Like, business is business. And sheep, at the end of the day, are an investment. And an investment doesn't do you any good if you don't live to see the end of it, right? But Jesus, having made so much use of the metaphor, separates it from its economic context. He says, the sheep are not a means to an end. For the shepherd, they are ends in themselves. Christ is saying, what marks me as the Messiah, the character of the Messiah is this, that I give my whole being for the sake of my people. He goes on to say something even stranger. I don't know if you noticed this, but he repeats that line twice. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, but the second time he places within the middle of it, this statement about the father. What's going on here? He, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
What you have here, one, one commentator calls it a kind of explanatory sandwich. He takes the two pieces on the end, and then inside of it, he places a teaching about the relationship of God to his creation, about the relationship of God to the Messiah, to the creation. He's giving you the same pieces on the outside, and in the middle, he's explaining what happens. The relationship that Christ is creating with his sheep, that intimate and nurturing knowledge is the same. It's a repetition of, it's an extension of, indeed an outflowing of, the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. Do you remember that question at the beginning, where does Christ get his authority from? What's the impetus for his action? The impetus for Christ's action is the very nature of God. Remember, Jesus, uh, at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is called the Word, the Logos, the logic, the emanating essence of God. And part of what's going on here is in the prophetic tradition about the Good Shepherd, there's sort of this puzzle, right? At times, God talks about himself being the Good Shepherd, and at times, God talks about sending the Christ, the Messiah, to be the good shepherd. At one point in Ezekiel 34, God says both at two different points. He says, I will send David, in other words, the Messiah, to shepherd my people, but also I myself will shepherd my people. So the question is, which is it? And here we find the answer. In Christ, who is both fully God and fully man, the heir of David, we have God taking upon himself the very death of the world that he might lead his people into life. God is not an abstract principle. God is not some universal generic spirit that doesn't care about his creation. God is knowing and knowable. God has a character. And the nature of that character is this, that it's that of a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, who loves his sheep so much to such an extent that the sheep become an end in themselves, become the, the purpose of his own self-sacrifice. Earlier, I mentioned that the image of Christ, the good shepherd, occupied a special place in the minds of the early church. I want to end with a quote from a historian, a 19th century Anglican priest named Arthur Stanley. He writes, what was the popular religion of the first Christians? It was, in one word, the religion of the good shepherd. The kindness, the courage, the grace, the love, the beauty of the Good Shepherd was to them, if we may say so, prayer book and articles, creeds and canons, all in one. They looked on that figure, and it conveyed to them all that they wanted. Christ our Lord is the Good Shepherd of the flock. He knows you because he has nurtured you from the beginning. He dwells alongside you, watches over you, and guides you and as himself taken upon himself the death of the world, that through him you might find eternal life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.